Hello and welcome to the January 2019 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by CJ, the Deputy Editor at Free Movement. We're starting with a roundup of some slightly mixed news on appeal rights before getting into the latest on Brexit and the settlement scheme for EU citizens living in the UK. There's some significant new guidance we're going to cover on good character in the context of British citizenship applications and then also going to cover a few business immigration updates. Finally, we're flying through a few cases from the Upper Tribunal, in particular on asylum. And if you listen to the end, you'll find out why the 10-year residence rule does require 10 years of lawful residence. The answer may not surprise you. So if you want to claim CPD for listening to the podcast, head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up for membership there. And we've got a short quiz that goes with each podcast to help you with your CPD. Over to you, CJ. I think we owe our listeners an apology, first of all, Colin, for being late with this podcast. Um, uh, so what with one thing and another, um, in particular, you being too busy and important to make call to the select committee is why we're only doing the January podcast in March. Yeah, to be to be fair, the select committee was literally one morning, so I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't think I can really hide behind that as an excuse. No, we are about a month behind on this one, aren't we? So we're, we're, we're sorry to our regular listeners. Absolutely. We'll, we'll get the February up one as soon as possible. Um, cracking on. Anyhow, uh, mixed news on appeal rights is correct. We have a positive result and a negative one. Uh, taking the good news first, a significant development in the field of EU free movement law. The government says it is going to introduce appeal rights for what are known as extended family members of EU citizens if they are refused a residence card. Uh, the government will lay legislation amending the EEA regulations 2016 quote, as soon as reasonably practicable. Uh, and that quote isn't from any official announcement, but we have it from uh, your Chamber's colleague, Colin Grace Brown at Garden Court Chambers, who was informed of this in the course of litigation against the Home Office, a sort of official undertaking. So, Colin, is that, if you've been denied an appeal in the past, is that good news? Can you now appeal? Or, or when, once legislation has passed, can you then appeal? Well, I don't think there's anything to stop somebody who has been denied a right of appeal by these regs to to just get an appeal in now. And obviously it will be late, it'll be out of time, but there's a very good reason why it's being lodged out of time. Um, I don't think there's a desperate hurry at the moment. I mean, this announcement will be known to free movement readers, but it's not kind of general public announcement as such. We haven't seen anything official from the Home Office. So I don't think that the the deadline is ticking yet on, on getting an appeal lodged, but there's certainly no harm in, in doing it sooner rather than later. Um, and, and I would say in passing, this this business about doing things as soon as reasonably practicable, it's, um, it's amazing how quickly the Home Office can do things when it wants to. And, you know, this blog post was the 14th of January. We're recording this on, what, the 5th of March. Um, you know, it, it, no idea when they're actually finally going to get round to, to implementing this properly. Um, but there's no sign of it happening in you know in the near future and the home office does tend to announce things at the last minute i suppose but um hopefully hopefully it'll be soon but i'm not holding my breath yeah fair enough as soon as reasonably practicable could could mean many months um due to bitter experience um all right well let's turn briefly to the bad news on appeal rights this time for turkish citizens specifically uh, the court of appeal delivered an unhelpful decision in the case of ca turkey 2018 wca civ 2875 uh, this was better known as the Akturk case in the High Court, which ruled that abolishing appeal rights for Turkish citizens who were seeking to live in the UK was in breach of the Ankara Agreement, 
but that's not be, now been reversed by the Court of Appeal. Um, abolishing appeal rights is, is apparently fine. Uh, Emma Dakin of Lamb Building was involved in that case, and she calls it a disappointing decision. Yeah, and that sounds like a very good assessment to me. I, it's a real shame that the, um, the judgment by Mr Justice Holman was overturned, because there was some really nice stuff in there about the value of an appeal over a judicial review. Um, but um, basically the Court of Appeal says, says that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't count for enough. And um, yeah, there is no right of appeal in these cases. Um, as, as Emma says, um, the litigants did actually succeed, I think, on, on these cases, and um, or at least the, the criticisms of the Home Office's decision-making in these cases was upheld, and in particular on the need to ask questions in an interview or request further information before making assumptions. Shock, horror that anybody at the Home Office would you know, fail to do that and, and jump the gun and make an assumption without asking for further information. But uh, it has been known to happen and, um, and, and does in some of these cases. So um, I, p- people in this situation, if they are refused, they can make a further application um, with further evidence if that's suitable or else they're going to have to fall back on an application for judicial, re- judicial review. Fair enough. That's a shame uh, for those individuals. Let's talk then about Brexit. I'm sure there's good news on this. Uh, ah, no. Uh, January saw <laughs> uh, uh, Parliament voted down Theresa May's Brexit deal by a whopping margin. Uh, won't be news to anyone, um, but that brings the prospect of no deal squarely into focus. Not still true as we're talking now. Um, the government in January published a plan for immigration if there is no deal. Um, so this is on top of the no deal offer for existing residents. It's about EU citizens who moved to the UK after uh, the 29th of March, if there's no orderly exit or whatever day Brexit is, if it's delayed. Um, basically, the plan is you can come, you can stay for three months, but then to stay longer than that, you will have to apply. Um, and the visa you'd apply for would be called European Temporary Leave to Remain. This would be a temporary system placed in 2021 by another system for EU immigration, um, at which point if you have European temporary leave, you'd have to apply again to stay in the long term. Anything to add on that, Carl? Not really. I mean, we're all hoping that this doesn't happen, basically, and that the transition arrangement um, kicks in if there is a deal, which means that the um, immigration EEA regs will, will continue in place. Um, the, if this does happen, if this no deal does happen, and um, this new temporary sort of system has to be brought in, it's, it does look like it's going to be a big mess, basically, because there will be no way for people to distinguish you know, employers, landlords, the Home Office for that matter, to distinguish between pre-existing residents who are EU citizens and, and new arrivals who are EU citizens who arrive after the 29th of March. And it's also very unclear what the legal status will be of um, EU citizens who are already here, what their, I'm sure they will have legal status, but if they're scrapping the immigration EEA regs, it's not completely clear what the legal basis will be, whether it will be some sort of temporary grant of leave or the immigration regs will be amended in some way so that they only apply to people who are currently resident. Or it's, it's, There's a lot of questions that we've got, but hopefully yeah, we don't need answers to those because um, there will be a deal and, and there'll be a slightly sort of smoother transition. Yeah, that's, I suppose the advantage of the withdrawal agreement for all its flaws, um, that it does provide a sort of framework for all these issues. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's um, new arrivals from the EU and for existing residents, as we know, the EU settlement scheme is the only game in town, whether there's deal or no deal, and that opened in January. A lot of discussion in the media. Just one thing to highlight on the settlement scheme, the Home Office released 
the results of a pilot, an earlier pilot, um, seemed pretty positive, 100% success rate for applicants, they said. Um, and I must confess that in my piece on this, I sort of took that at face value. But there has been a lot of pushback from NGOs that took part in that pilot, saying that vulnerable users really struggled the and that this 100% success rate is not all it seems because while they didn't refuse anyone, they just sat on thousands of applications, asked for more information and just didn't decide them. Um, so yeah, that, I think it's about 10%, wasn't it? 10% of applications hadn't been decided um, at the close of the pilot, I think it'd be about right. That, that sounds, I'm not sure exactly, but it sounds about right. Yeah, so that, there's a lot of potential refusals hiding in the pile, basically. So I think the jury's still out on how li- how liberal the, the scheme is going to be in terms of granting people status. But the good news is that the £65 application fee has been scrapped uh, for EU settled status. That was announced on the 21st of January. Uh, if you apply up until the end of March, you still do have to pay up front, but you get a refund because the payment elements couldn't be removed from the online uh, process in time, I suppose, because it was a last minute decision, it seems. Um, and finally, uh, just in terms of people getting advice on the scheme, the Office of the Immigration Services Commissioner, or OISC, is launching a scheme to get people accredited uh, to help with settled status applications. No exam, but you need to be part of an organisation, really, to get that accreditation. Uh, I think, Colin, your take on that was that it's welcome, but doesn't really go far enough to meet demand for advice on settlement. Yeah, so I don't think it's often you'll hear lawyers saying this, because it's lawyers famously enjoy their closed shop, where you know it's it's only certain people are allowed to give advice and, and so on, and, and immigration's particularly like that, because it's, it is a criminal offence to give immigration advice um, unless you're, you're fully regulated. But my take is that you know, there's, there's going to be a huge demand for information and advice under the settled status scheme. We're talking about literally millions of people who've got to go through it. And while hopefully the majority won't have any problems and won't need any advice, there's going to be a substantial minority who do. And you know, the the more we can do to make advice available, the better. And this is, as you say, welcome. It's, it's an improvement on the existing um, scheme. But I think we could be doing more. I think we could be doing more to make advice easier to get, basically. Definitely going to be a vast amount of demand, um, but at least they're they're trying. Let's go away from Brexit and turn to nationality law. And as you mentioned at the outset, Colin, there is new guidance on the good character test and how the Home Office applies that to British citizenship applications. John Vassiliou, who is our resident nationality guru on free movements, has reviewed that uh, guidance on the website. There's a lot of new material in the policy about children, a big issue in how the good character test is applied to children, but also on the implications for a citizenship application of illegal entry or a deportation order or owing a debt to the NHS and, and much more besides. Again, Colin, I think sort of similar thing as, as on this um, settlement issue, good as far as it goes, but a missed opportunity to be much more radical and, and less punitive, I think, to when it comes to denying people citizenship. Yeah, in particular on children, I mean, it's, it's really disappointing. We've been waiting for a long time for a new version of the Good Character Guidance to come out, and there's been a lot of criticism of the way that um, children are treated under the, the old guidance. And the new guidance really does just pay lip service to the idea of best interests of children. We've got some standard paragraphs that are pasted in at the front that Home Office officials should have been following anyway, and clearly weren't. So I don't see that including the policy is going to make any real difference. Um, and we can still see that basically officials are 
are effectively instructed by this guidance to treat children um, the same way as anybody else who's committed a criminal offence and that basically it bars them from, from British citizenship, which just seems very unfair for those who... You know, the, the, the context here is that um, the good character test now applies to children aged 10 or over. And the idea that a sort of 13, 14, 15-year-old kid who's, who's had some sort of trouble with the police is then barred from applying for citizenship either while they're a child or, or once they've turned 18 um, because of behaviour when they were younger does seem pretty inhuman, frankly. Um, and it, and it, it's, it, it feeds into this whole two-tier citizenship that we've been seeing with the Shamima Begum case as well recently, which we're I, I, yeah, I'm mentioning, but we're not covering this month. That's, that's next edition, for sure. Um, and we do know that this good character test is applied to children like there is data on the number of children that are refused to citizenship because they are said to be of bad character so it's not a hypothetical issue i suppose yeah, yeah. I and mean, there, there are hundreds of refusals on that ground and the, the other issue that um, comes up which is a bit better is on refugees because um ever since about 2014 poor immigration history has been considered grounds for refusal under the good character test and um there was correspondence from previous immigration ministers saying that that should be applied slightly differently to refugees who've entered illegally, because basically refugees almost can't enter legally, if you see what I mean. Um, and that is now, to some extent, reflected in the guidance, although I think they've tightened it up from the, the correspondence dating back to 2014-15, which isn't so great. But it's good to see it in the actual official guidance, because I've, I've heard of cases where refugees have been refused on good character grounds, where they shouldn't have been basically and when the correspondence gets brought to the attention of the home office the decision is reversed so you, you the problem is you've got officials who just aren't aware of of what their own guidance is because it wasn't in the actual guidance so, uh, so yeah actually putting it in the policy will be really helpful in that sense yeah, that's, just that's lack def- of awareness. yeah exactly that's very much to be welcomed but um the fact that it actually seems to have tightened up slightly um isn't quite so welcome yeah, I think John John said as much, and I think he's actually going to work on a standalone article about that, which is coming up shortly. Let's move on, anyhow, to the business and study side of things. Uh, a brief mention for an article that Nicola Carter has written about one of your pet subjects, Colin, which is professional sports people. Um, now, we did cover this on the last podcast, so we won't go into details again, but the headline on that one is Why Coaching Your Kids Football Team Could Breach Your Visa Conditions. And if that piques your interest, uh, take a look at Nicola's piece on the site. Um, also, in the business end of things, there's a court of appeal case about entrepreneur visas to report. Harpreet Singh, 2018, EWCA Civ 2861. That was about failure to submit specified documents in the entrepreneur visa application and how evidential flexibility will not save you. So I think that case, sort of another shot across the bows of practitioners to have all their ducks in a row on these applications and, and not be sort of looking to, for evidential flexibility to bail them out. Um, do you have a look at that one, Colin? I've taken a look, and it, it's, it's the latest in a long line of cases, basically saying that if you don't meet the very precise, very exacting requirements, um, very precise requirements, then um, you're screwed, um, excuse my language and um, yeah, it's not it's not really a surprise the outcome the court expresses yeah. some sympathy for the applicant as they often do in these cases but nevertheless they say tough luck visa refused and you're going to need to leave the UK no matter you know what your contribution has been in the past no matter how long you've been here and and, and, and so on yeah fine words butter no parsnips in those cases I think uh, asylum then we'll run through the rest of uh, the case law on that and there were a few reported cases from the upper tribunal not all of them 
grain breaking you'd have to say but all reported and therefore uh, relevant um, the first of them is pretty interesting vulnerable asylum seekers can face breaches of their article 3 rights if returned to Italy under the Dublin regulation Colin I'll quote your words back at you on this case uh, you said it would be fair to say the circumstances where this applies are tightly drawn by the tribunal the vulnerability would need to be severe and very strong evidence of the severe vulnerability would be needed yeah, and it's they're, they're trying to make it as tight as possible there, aren't they? Um, nevertheless, you know, this is a successful case and there have been literally years of hard work put in by solicitors and barristers on these cases. Um, we all know that um, Italy isn't coping terribly well with um, the influx of, of asylum seekers and refugees and sending somebody back to Italy is, is really problematic, um, particularly if they're vulnerable. So it's good to see a, a positive outcome finally after um, years of litigation. Absolutely. Well done to all concerned. And that case citation is RSM and others and Secretary of State, brackets, Dublin Regulation, Italy, close brackets, 2018, UKUT 429, IAC. Next up from the tribunal and standby for another long case citation is the case of AMA, Article 1C5, Proviso Internal Relocation, 2019 UK UT 11 IAC. This one uh, about cessation of refugee status and as the citation notes, Article 1C5 of the Refugee Convention. And that article provides an exception to cessation of refugee status where the person can, and I quote, invoke compelling reasons arising out of previous persecution for refusing to avail himself of the protection of the country of nationality. The tribunal in that case holds that this doesn't apply in normal refugee cases nowadays. Yeah, and, and that doesn't... I, I, I'm not going to go over the history for this one, and it doesn't come as much of a surprise. I don't think many of us thought that it did. Um, and the, the, the concerning thing in this case is that it's another example, and we, we seem to have covered quite a few of these in the last few months, of, of what I'm calling selective cessation of refugee status, where you've got, um, I think it's a Somali refugee in this case, um, and the Home Office has decided to cease their refugee status basically because of criminal behaviour, not because of any real improvement in, in conditions in, in Somalia. And essentially they're, they're, the Home Office is acting in a op- pretty opportunistic, unprincipled way in these cases and saying, well, we're going to take it away from you, but we're going to leave everybody else in place. Um, but in fact, of course, by taking it away from one person, you open the door to taking it away from everybody else. It is a reminder that the Refugee Convention doesn't provide for permanent resettlement it actually only applies for um, temporary resettlement but that you know most signatories to the convention do allow people to settle permanently because it's the humane thing to do Um, and ultimately actually this case succeeds Um, so although um, the claimant lost on the the big legal issue here um, he actually won on um, it not being reasonable for him to relocate to Mogadishu because he'd never lived there had no experience there and it would be um, basically unduly harsh so ultimately it does actually succeed in that he, he retains his refugee status and I'd quite like to see the Home Office sort of stop um, trying to cease refugee status on the basis of criminality and dressing it up as if it was to do with country conditions. Yeah the, the immigration inspector did a report I think last year pointing out that this is what was happening that it was uh, as you say opportunistic uh, cessation when it was people who the Home Office wanted to get rid of uh, but it's sort of dishonest if you like cessation is not supposed to be based on the what the person has done it's supposed to be based on what's gone on back in the home country right 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and and it's it just has it's kind of as I say, it opens the door to the idea of sending basically everybody else back to Somalia because the Home Office position officially in these cases, these selective cessation cases, is that things have improved and therefore people can be sent back. Mm, yeah, okay, concerning. Well, fingers crossed that doesn't sort of develop further, although we know it is happening from time to time. Um, next case uh, we'll move on to is RMS, a trial by his litigation friend MAS and Secretary of State, Dublin 3, duty to investigate, 2019 UK UT9 IAC. This was about Dublin 3 rules in the context of a child seeking to enter the UK from Calais. So worth reading if relevant to your work. But otherwise, I think, Con, we don't necessarily need to get into the weeds on this one. No, it's it's very fact-specific and it's quite a shocking set of facts. I mean, just very, very briefly, you know, the Home Office um, had failed to take DNA evidence and then claimed that it would be illegal to take DNA evidence. And then the court, when it actually looked at it, said, look, there's no need for DNA evidence. It, it's obvious that this claim is related as claimed anyway. So... Um, the Home Office seems to be doing everything it possibly can to put obstacles in the way of reuniting children in France with their, their relatives in the UK. That's very worrying on a policy level, but there's not much legally, shall we say, in, in this case that's of interest. Fair. Likewise, just a quick mention then for a few more cases. One is in the Court of Justice of the European Union on asylum based on religious belief or lack of belief. And that is case C5617, Fathi and Bulgaria. Uh, not that new, but the English translation is, or, or was when we uh, reported on the website. Uh, so, yeah, worth taking a look at what the court says about valuing, uh, evaluating an asylum claim based on belief, some sort of general guidance or principles, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I found this one quite interesting because I'm quite interested in these cases and I've done a few recently. And um, I think it does add to our understanding a little bit about how to handle these kind of conversion surplus type refugee claims based on on faith and um, there's an interesting passage paragraph 88 of the the judgment about looking at the sort of person's individual position personal circumstances how they develop their religious beliefs how they understand and live their faith or their atheism um, connection with the doctrinal ritual or prescriptive aspects of the religion to which he states he's affiliated um, possible role in transmission of faith combination of religious factors regarding identity ethnicity gender so it's, it's quite sort of interesting pointers there for you know how do you actually evaluate whether somebody um has genuinely converted in some way or changed their their beliefs or background in, the, in on something like this and um you know is it serious enough is it of such a nature that you, you're entitled to refugee status so some quite meaty issues in it it's well worth a look if you're, you're dealing with those kind of cases absolutely uh fatty and bulgaria as i say Court of Justice. Uh, close to home then, the Upper Tribunal has declared that the Isle of Man and Channel Islands are not subject to EU free movement rules. They're not actually in the EU, so that makes sense. The case citation is AMSAR Isle of Man Free Movement 2019 UK UT 12 IAC. And finally, for this month, uh, what we call politely a novel argument in the case of Ahmed, paragraph 276b, 10 years lawful residence 2019 UK UT 10 IAC. The issue in that case, do you need to have lived in the UK for 10 years to get settlement based on being in the UK for 10 years? The answer, yes. Yes, yes. No more need really be said on that. Although I, I can't help but say that for some bizarre reason, I've noticed that that post has been getting quite a lot of hits recently. So maybe um, maybe it is actually a question that, that lots of people did need the answer to. Maybe. It might just be the issue of 
10-year residence rule in general is, is something that people are, are interested in because we've got other posts on that that are really popular. So it might be the specifics, but more the just people are searching all the time for, for information about this. Let's hope so. <laughs> okay, I think that pretty much wraps us up for this month then. Um, so hopefully that has been useful. Hopefully that brings you up to date to um, the end of January. And we'll be back hopefully pretty soon with um, February's podcast as well. So thanks and goodbye. Thank you.